Now, like I said, we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about marriage and uh, the family, and, and then the week after that, talk about parents and, and then going to work. But uh, these next two weeks, we're going to talk about uh, marriage specifically, and starting today uh, with the female side of marriage, uh, all of you brides. I've done, I figured it out the other day, I'm doing another wedding in June, uh, but as I was calculating, you know, for this sermon, I've done like over 200 weddings, which is kind of part and parcel of what I do as, you know, a pastor, um, but they've all basically been the same in different places and different environments with lots of different brides and grooms, but they've all basically been the same. They start out with me standing next to a guy who is nervous, right? <laughs> he is freaking out. Life is about to be uh, changed forever. Uh, he's happy and, and just scared. Uh, but coming down the aisle is, the, is, is oftentimes the girl who's been thinking of this day for her whole life, and everything is just as she wanted it, and she's wearing the dress, and she can't wipe the smile off her face, and She's pausing every few steps so the photographer could get another good picture, you know. And, uh, and then finally she arrives at the front, typically with her dad. He gives her away to him. They stand next to me uh, as I walk them through some ideas from Scripture about uh, marriage and what it really means. And then they turn and face each other and they start making promises. We call them covenants. They covenant as husband and wife to have and to hold each other from this day forward in things like uh, better and worse and richer and poorer and sickness and health. And then they say these phrases, at least if they're being married by me. Uh, the husband says, I promise to lead you as I follow Jesus Christ. And then uh, he finishes and the wife goes and makes her promises. And as part of that, she says, I promise to follow you as I follow Jesus Christ. Sat down with over 200 couples and uh, been to all kinds of weddings, huge ones, small ones, uh, I've done weddings in my office <laughs> with witnesses from our staff, um, uh, but have never once from any of the husbands uh, been asked by them to rewrite those vows. They seem pretty comfortable with the whole, I promise to lead you as I follow Jesus Christ thing. Or maybe they're not thinking about it, or maybe they're just like, hey bro, whatever, whatever I gotta say, just get me married. That's all I care about, right? Uh, <laughs> most of the brides who've gone over these vows have issued very little protest, but I remember one certain bride, uh, you know, 14, 15 years ago, who looked across the table at me and said, hey, Mark, is it okay if we leave out all that submission stuff? And I asked her why. She said, well, you know, I just, I just don't know if I want my man to be my boss. And I said, well, you, you and I need to talk further. She, she was kind of chafing at, at the phrasing of this and, and, and even at the verses that this phrase comes from. And we're going to study those verses today. That's why I bring it up. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this to wives. It says, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. A, a couple of verses later, it says this in verse 24. Now, as, to, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this particular bribe maybe. Uh, some of you ladies as well. Uh, that doesn't feel good. Uh, it feels like somehow you're being lessened in the relationship, that you're the, the gopher, the doormat uh, to your husband who God has made the boss. It was understandable that uh, this particular bride was cautious uh, because she, like I, uh, was grateful for the past 100 years or so of history in, in our world for all the advances that have come about uh, 
as culture has kind of progressed in understanding a, a woman's uh, abilities and a woman's you know, uh, uh, place in our world. A hundred years ago, roughly, women weren't voting in our country, all right? And they won the right for that, rightly. And then uh, as, as we've progressed, they've, they've become, you know, I was watching a documentary uh, yesterday on the 40s uh, on the History Channel, and it talked about how the ladies uh, during the war effort uh, left their homes and went into the factories and became a part of the workforce by the millions uh, so that our country could, you know, do what it did in World War II. And, and so I'll, I don't need to detail every advance, but there's been a few. Has anybody read the history books and understand that things are quite different? And things are progressing uh, and, and uh, you know, becoming uh, even more so uh, an equal society, and rightly so in so many ways. Uh, just so you know, Christianity was kind of a, the first to adopt equality. It might not seem as much as you read these verses in your Bible, but uh, back when, when Jesus was hanging out, women uh, had absolutely no rights. In fact, they were seen as property, as chattel, as, as uh, the possessions of their fathers or of their husbands. Uh, had no rights whatsoever in the Jewish or the Greek or the Roman cultures. Um, Jesus changed that. You see in your scriptures the stories of the women who were prominent in the early faith, and uh, they were given special places uh, in the story of Christianity because they were seen, as we see in Galatians, uh, they were seen as equals. There's neither male nor female, slave nor Greek. Uh, there's or Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. I mixed that up. But, but there's equality in the body of Christ. I'm grateful for that. Who's grateful for that? Anybody grateful for that? Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. So this bride was kind of weighing all of that and was like, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. Shouldn't it be equal? And I, uh, if I could have that conversation over, I honestly can't remember what I said to her. I hope it was something like this. I would, I would say two things to this bride, too. The first one would be this. I would remind her, as I'm going to remind you, that when we read the book, when we read God's Word, we let that be the determiner of our lives and not what the world says. The church must never bend her beliefs away from Jesus for the sake of fitting in with her culture. If the Word paints a different picture than what's seen in the world, we stick with the Word over the world every time. Some of you wanted to clap. You should have. It's too late. So this has been on my uh, bookcase for I don't know how many years. I didn't even know I owned it. Has anybody got something like that at your house? I think it's a globe. Has anybody seen that as a globe? This is the Bible. It's, it's, some of you are wondering if I still have a paper Bible. Here's mine. This is what we have been called to for 2,000 years as a, as a church. We have been called to a life where we go to our world after examining our word and we let the word be the filter for how we live in our world. Now more and more in the world that we live in, it's changing in the churches of our culture to where the world and what's happening in the world becomes how we understand the word and things are kind of flipping on their ear. Are you with me? But the body of Christ for 2,000 years has been told and taught. No, when it comes to your view of life and the world that you live in, start with this and then go to this. We don't start with this and then interpret this. So I would tell her that. I said, listen, if it's in your book, 
It may be problematic. Certainly, whatever we read there, we need to understand correctly, and then we need to bring it to our world with love and grace. All right? The Bible's not a hammer for us to smack people over the head with, but it is our guide. It's our credo. It's what we hold to when it comes to the world that we live in. We do that because we understand that God is our creator, therefore he is our designer, he is our sustainer, and what he has purposed in our existence should never change because the, golf, the culture goes a different way. So, so you and I were created by God for a purpose, designed to be a certain way as men and women to, to function as creations of God, and he created all these things around us, all these relationships, parents, kids, friends and family, uh, and then husbands and wives. And he says, here's how I want it. And so when it comes to understanding those things, we go, we go, can anybody hear the people banging around back there? Anyway, we go to the design that God has rather than the design that the world would have us have. I'm thankful that God gives us this picture of his design for marriage and for other things that we might benefit because here's the deal. If we use things for what they're meant to be used for, we get the best from their use. Don't you agree? Like if you use anything in your world for what it was meant for, it's, it's the best use of that thing. I uh, came into a room where my two-year-old nephew was hanging out over one Christmas season and I had recently been uh, the, the purchaser of, a, of an iPad. Back when these things first came out, I preached from one of these uh, but I watched as, as my nephew uh, took the iPad that I had mistakenly left in his range. My bad, my bad, right? You don't leave anything where a two-year-old can get it. It's just a bad move. But I had left it there, and he had already started to suck the edges of it. So I had, you know, two-year-old spit all over this thing. And I walked in the room as he was just about to chuck this thing. Kind of like, you know, the forward Frisbee move in Ultimate. And uh, I, whoa, 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 whoa! and grabbed it before he could do it. And he kind of looked at me startled. And I says, no, 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 not a Frisbee, buddy. Look at this thing. It's awesome, right? And I tried to explain apps and stuff like that to him like an idiot. <laughs> Which, that was like, uh, you know, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, now, two-year-olds and three-year-olds can explain an iPad to you. You know what I'm talking about? They're never without a screen. But I wonder if that's how God kind of looks down at his church sometimes. He says, I've given you all these amazing things, all these amazing creations that I have designed for a certain purpose, but you're like two-year-olds with iPads. And you're just chucking what I've designed for you around your living rooms. And of course it's not working out like it's supposed to. You're, you're not using it or functioning with it in the ways that it was designed. Oh, that we would be a church that would understand God's design for us in our own lives, in our homes, in our marriages. Listen, if you're married right now, what I pray over the next two weeks is, is that you get to recalibrate to God's design. If you're not married yet, as many of you youngers aren't, my prayer is that as you prepare, you will understand God's design and you will choose it when you get to go into your marriages. So I'd tell that young lady who said, maybe can we take the submission part out and say, no, 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 it's in the book. We're going to keep it. It's God's design. And then I'd say, listen, I understand your protest, but I don't think you really understand submission. I need to explain to you a biblical submission and this, this blessed losing that we're talking about in this series is really all about. See, submission is not a, a mindless following, a powerless slavery. It's not a prisoner's existence. 
As we've learned in, I hope, previous sermons, and especially from last week, we are called to submit to each other as we submit to Christ. But that doesn't mean we become doormats for each other. Submission instead implies a willing and joyful service, a chosen deference to others, a life of selfless humility. Putting it in a different way, maybe this is a good definition of right submission. There's certainly wrong ways to submit, but in right submission, uh, those who are submitting seek to lower themselves for the betterment of others wherever, whenever, and however possible. It may not always be possible. It may not always feel like to them that you're doing what's best for them. Has anybody ever disciplined a child? I'm doing this for your own good. I never believed that once when my mom said it. But wherever it's possible, whenever it's possible, however it's possible, we as God's createds are meant to live in submission to each other for the betterment of each other, for the glory of God and for the betterment of each other. That's what submission means. It's the Greek word hupotasso. It means hupo, which is basically under, and tasso, to place. It's to place yourself under, to submit yourself willingly. We looked at some verses last week that kind of helped us with this. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, <coughs> excuse me, that we're not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery is this Greek, Greek word that means without life. It's a great word. Uh, and so listen, if, if you want to be without life, give yourself over to anything that will control your life, like alcohol or drugs or any addictions of any kind. Let those be your God. You won't have a life at all, Paul says. Don't get drunk with that stuff. Don't be filled with that stuff. It's debauchery. But instead, be filled with what? Actually, be filled with who? The Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And it goes on. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Uh, uh, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other. Be filled with the Spirit in such a way that the Spirit flows out of you in your speech. Be filled with the Spirit in such a way that you can't help but waking up every day and saying thanks. It says in the next verse, verse 20, it says, giving thanks in all things at all times to your God who has given you much. And then it says in verse 21 that being filled with the Spirit will be seen in you as you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why should we seek to live in right submission? Why should we seek to submit to one another? Well, right submission in relationships is a true indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, um, sometimes I can go covert, you know, kind of be like a secret uh, you know, spy Christian, just kind of function beneath the radar, uh, knowing, well, you know, well, I get outed all the time because of my job, right? So what do you do? Pastor, right, there it is, Christian, yeah. But some of you guys, you can go into worlds and stay there for years and no one ever knows that you believe what you believe. You know what? That's not how Christians are supposed to function. In fact, we should function in such a way that they shall know we are Christians by things like our love, right? That they'll know we are Christians just by how we act and speak, and if you want people to know that you're a Christian, you get really good at submitting out of reverence to Christ. It's almost like uh, you know, wearing a, an emblem or a badge, right? Who, anybody vote this year? Who voted this year? Somebody like that. Uh, voting, uh, when you're done. You know what my favorite part of voting is? Anybody want to guess? Is it being in the booth? Is it actually having to pick? That's all lose-lose, right? <laughs> it feels like it anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, that's political. All right, um, 
My favorite part of voting is the end. Because you take your ballot up and you're like, well, best I could do. And then <laughs> they give you what? A sticker. And some people are praying, I mean, they stick their chest out when they voted. Have you noticed this? People come into a meeting, well, hello. Oh, I didn't know it was Tuesday. Oh, I didn't know. That sticker is a sign that you've done something, you've been somewhere. And our submission is a sign to the world that the Holy Spirit resides in us. It's not just that, though. It's not just an indicator of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's an indicator of and will always be the result of my true reverence for Jesus, because that's what it says there. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submissive people, truly submissive people, rightly submissive people, are doing it because their impetus is the worship of their Savior. Their impetus is their desire to be obedient to Christ. As a Christian, I, I want to honor Jesus. I don't always do it perfectly or even well, but my, my desire is to is to do what he says and to honor him with how I live. And so, if that's the case, then I will become a servant to people. I will become a submitted person to Christ and to those that he loves. That means I'll end up doing things I don't want to do. Has anybody ever done things that you didn't really want to do? I hope you did those things, not because of what it would get you, some kind of shine, some kind of cred, you could pose in the picture, but I hope you did those things because you knew, hey, even though I, I don't want to spend my time doing this, even though this isn't going to be a lot of bang for my buck, it'll show that I love my Savior and that I'm willing to obey him as I serve those around me. Those things alone uh, make right submission worth it to me, uh, but I am further inspired by this fact as we discuss this all-important area. Uh, in almost every place that I examine the command of submission in Scripture, uh, when it comes to human relationships and submission, um, those commands of submission are always accompanied with standards for those who we are submitting to. Like in this one. What does it say? Submit to who? One another. It's reciprocal. And so as I submit to you and as you submit to me, guess what? We have unity and harmony in our relationship. There is joy and love and peace as we submit to one another, right? Wives, as it commands you in, 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 in marriage to submit to your husbands, take heart. The husband's got the tough job. They gotta be like Jesus in their love and leadership of you. I'm not saying that submission isn't hard, but I am saying that when both people in a marital relationship hold up their end of the deal, marriage works. Submission is never commanded without the expectation of those who are being submitted to. <laughs> I liken it to the carrying of a couch. Ever carried a couch with someone? There's some things that are just too big to carry on your own. I try to carry as many things as I can possibly on my own because if it falls, it's on me. But if I'm carrying something with you and you don't hold up your, your end of the deal and that couch comes over the stairs on top of me, well, not only am I hurt by a couch, but we got something to talk about, right? But just every once in a while in life, you can't pick it up on your own, right? 
And uh, if, if you're married out there, you know those days when your uh, able-bodied uh, teenage or college-age sons are not in the house, and it's just down to you and her. You know what I'm talking about? And babe, we gotta get this couch out of here, and she doesn't want any part of that, and I'm not saying that wives can't pick up couches. Don't hear me say that. I'm sure there's some wives in here that could out-bench press me. Good on you, right? But typically what happens in that relationship is the guy's used to carrying the couch. She's not, you know, been out there throwing these things around all the time. And there comes these conversations. Has anybody been in one of those? Because the guy picks it up like he's going to haul the couch, and she's like, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> and the wife says to her husband, turn it this way. And he thinks this way means this way, but she means that way. And so you have those opportunities <laughs> to build your relationship as you move the couch. But ultimately, if she holds up her end of the couch and you hold up your end of the couch and as you communicate through the whole moving this couch, uh, ultimately the couch gets to where it needs to go. And that's marriage. If the husband responds to the principles of God's word and holds up his end of the couch and becomes a servant leader to his wife like Christ is to his church, and then the wife, on the other side of the marriage, responds to the servant leadership and the Christ-likeness of her husband and seeks to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ, then they take that marriage and they carry it wherever it needs to go. And every once in a while, there's gonna be some discussions. There's gonna be some confusion over direction and there's gonna be lots of things to talk through. But in the end, if you function according to God's design and you both carry your end of the couch, the couch gets where it needs to go. And so as we walk through these two weeks, it's what I hope happens. For those of you who are already married, get the couch where it needs to go. For those of you who are yet to be married, get married committed to getting the couch to where it needs to go. Do your part. When you do your part, it makes it infinitely easier for the other person to do theirs. And as we're talking this week, we're going to see that Paul instructs wives in relationship with their husbands to joyfully submit to their husbands as an act of worship to God. How did I get that? It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Not because he is the Lord, which some chauvinistic uh, um, guerrilla theologians have taken this Greek text to mean. This, this Greek sentence can be translated uh, wives, submit to your husbands basically because he is your Lord. But that's not what it means. In the context, it's not what it means at all. In fact, the verse previous to said, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. It just, in the flow of thought goes, then wives, when it comes to your husbands, submit to them in the same way that you would submit to Jesus. In the same, in, in fact, not just that, but submit to them as an act of worship to Jesus. So I, I, I didn't have time to make this this week, but I want you to picture this with me. I wish I could give every husband this contraption. It'd be like a little collar, and out of the collar would come like a coat hanger wire, a stiff wire, and on the end of that stiff wire would be either a picture of Jesus in the bathrobe, maybe holding the lamb, or there would be the cross of Christ itself right there. And you, anytime you're around your wife, you would have to put that on. And it would be on you as a reminder to your bride. Because here's what happens. I know probably not in your marriages, fellas, but every once in a while in my marriage, <laughs> I'm a dirtbag. I'm a selfish, um, 
insensitive, uh, unaware lover of me. Uh, I can, uh, uh, I'm prone to wander, I can get lost in my old man, and I'll bring that to our marriage. And I'll uh, be frustrating to Eleanor, I'll be cutting with my words, and then I'll have the audacity to sit on my fat butt and a lazy boy and ask her to serve me. Hey, babe, while you're up, can you grab me a Diet Coke from the fridge? Hey, what's for dinner? Wives been there? You kind of are moving out of the room and you just want to turn around and shoot the hairy eyeball right through his forehead, right? (laughs) Maybe you do. Listen, before you do that, before you utter the words seriously and start World War whatever, how about this? This is why I think it'd be a great contraption. How about, as you're looking at that guy and his lazy boy, and you see that cross hanging over here off his right shoulder, how about you turn and say to him, as if you're saying it to Jesus himself, hey, babe, I'd love to get you that soda. Because you're not saying it to him. It's not that he's worthy of your service in that moment. But you are commanded in every situation, almost every situation, I'll get to that in a second, to be humble, to be submitted to your husbands. But you do it, not because he's worthy, but because Jesus is. You do it as an act of worship, as a sign of reverence for Christ. It goes on in verse 24, it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should should submit in everything to their husbands. Kind of a a rephrase, uh, bookends around a verse that I'm going to get to in a second that's about you fellas. But the command is pretty clear. Hey, ladies, out of reverence to Christ, as unto the Lord, live in submission to the servant leadership of your husbands. This is the church submits to Christ. Submitting everything to their husbands. Ladies have come to me, uh, unfortunately, lots of marriages kind of break down from time to time, and they'll come to me and they say, how much is everything? Because <laughs> it seems pretty expansive here. I'll, I will tell you that there's, uh, when it comes to human relationships, when it says to do this in everything, there's always a clause that you need to remember. Because in human relationships, submission is only uh, possible and should only be exhibited or, or exercised when it's within the morality or within the code that God has for that relationship. Here's what I mean. If your husband comes to you, lady, and says, ladies, and says, hey, uh, it is my decision as your servant leader that we start you know, robbing 7-Elevens. And here's your ski mask. You're going to be the driver. Uh, <laughs> we're going to hit the, you know, the first one over here at uh, you know, Mount Carmel in 60 at 2 in the morning this morning. Uh, you know, have the car ready. Okay, ladies, I know it's crazy, and you're like, come on, Mark, come on, seriously, that never happened. That's never happened in my uh, counseling, thank the Lord. But um, if your husband asks you to do something that is outside the will of God, you're not submitted to that. Why? Because of the cross behind his head. You are to submit to him as an honor, as an act of worship to Christ. And if he's asking you to do things that are not an honor or an act of worship to Christ, um, then you need to challenge him with that, We're not going to rip off 7-Elevens, honey. That's a bad idea. And then you need to refuse in those situations to follow him in that. Let me get more practical because 7-Elevens is a little weird. 
people ask me all the time, you know, uh, um, what do I do if, if, if my relationship with my husband has become contentious to the point that it's abusive, whether it's verbal or physical? That's easy. Ladies, you get out of that house. You don't subject yourself to a tyrant, a brute, uh, a maniac who's going to harm you. That is not the will of God for that home. That is not the will of God for your marriage. And I'm not saying you leave that marriage or that you end that marriage, but I'm saying that you're not in the presence of that person until he sorts some things out and comes back to the fold and honors Jesus in his relationship with him. Are you with me? So if that's you today, you probably need to pack a bag tonight. If you're getting whooped in your house, it's not God's will that you stay there. Now, things have gotten a little hanky with the whole emotional or verbal abuse. Sometimes uh, uh, people can be equally verbally abusive, and both of you should stop, don't get me wrong. But if it becomes this kind of emotional anchor, and you need to just get some space to breathe. I'm all, listen, I'm all for whatever's going to make a marriage healthy. I'm all for whatever would bring about change in a marriage that's broken. So yes, submit, but not as a doormat, not as someone who enables another person to be sinful and wrong in their relationship. Submission is not silence. Submission is standing up for what is right in your relationship, and eventually, if that doesn't work, get into a spot where you can be safe and things can be healed. All right, ladies, I'll give you a break. So what about the husbands? What about you guys? Paul got anything to say? He's got lots to say. Way more to say to you than to her. We'll talk more about that next week. But even in between these two verses on submission, he slips this one in. And initially, husbands will be like, oh, great. But let me explain it further. Paul basically says, husbands should emulate, emulate Jesus in loving and leading their wives. Look what it says in verse 23. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and his body and is himself its savior. That Greek word uh, head is the Greek word kephale, and it's a, a much debated term. You got people on this end who just, uh, you know, usually, uh, um, you know, female theologians who want to just undo the whole submissive thing altogether. They're on this end, and they're going to interpret kephale as, as one of its meanings, which is source. A husband is the source, uh, the facilitator of the woman's life, not the boss. Okay? You got the more traditional, more complementarian view, which says, no, that word, and I, I, just so you know, I, I, I can't deny that this word is most oftenly translated head, as in, that's what the word kefale means, it means head. So head in terms of authority or leader, just like your head is the leader of your body, your brain tells the rest of this what to do, mine's telling me to do this right now, right? But you're, 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 the, you're the authority if you're the head, just like Jesus is the authority uh, in the church, right? Okay, so, so what does this mean then? Well, I think it, it means a little bit of both. It means that we are certainly men uh, given the, the mantle, the responsibility for the spiritual health and the emotional and relational health of our marriages. We're given the responsibility for the spiritual health and emotional health of our families. We are given that position as Christ was in the church. But that is not a position where we come in and we say, well, here's my throne, everybody bow. Here's what I think, everybody do. I'm the boss of you. 
Thus saith the Lord. Uh, we are given a template, uh, a leader to fashion our leadership after. His name is Jesus. And we examine his leadership for how we should lead in our homes. See, because uh, we, we read a chapter before how Jesus leads in the church. Paul said this to the Ephesians. He said, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into who? Him who is the, is, is the head into Christ. Okay, so Christ is the head of his church and we're meant to emulate him as, as Christians. And, and, and so how does Christ work in his church? Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, so all the body members make up the body, when each part is working properly, uh, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Jesus is the head of the church, is the facilitator of the leader in the church, growing so that it builds up itself in love. Sounds like a good formula for a happy marriage, right? If the head of the marriage is leading in such a way that the marriage is growing so that it can build itself up and be um, surrounded in and wrapped up in the love that it was meant to experience in the marriage. Well, that sounds like a pretty good plan for a leader in that situation. So as Christ leads the body into unity, into growth, so the husband is meant to lead and provide for his wife. He is the servant, the provider, the pr protector and defender of his home and the example that all others in the home are to follow. He is not there to simply rule. He is responsible for the flourishing of that marriage with his wife, for the two of them to hold their ends of the couch and to take this marriage where it's meant to go. He understands that his leadership role is, is not about ruling, it's about responsibility. And when it comes to you know, playing whichever side of the character of Christ, he doesn't have to go any further than Ephesians 5.23 where it says this one more time. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is his himself its savior. What an interesting choice that Paul makes there because he could have gone Lord and then I'll be fair, in some other texts it talks about uh, wives submitting to their husbands more as a Lord, but we can argue those in another day. But here in this seminal text, as he teaches about the marital relationship, he says, no, fellas, you are a leader in so, in so much as you are a savior. You are uh, willing to set yourself aside like Christ did for the sake of those that you're saving. See, because saviors, they serve as leaders. Look what it says in Matthew 20, verse 26. Uh, it says, as Jesus was talking to his friends, uh, they were all arguing about where they were going to sit in the kingdom, who's going to have the highest rank. Um, they had actually, uh, one of the, some of the brothers had asked their mom to come and ask Jesus, you know, can you make sure that my son sit to your right and to your left? And so they, they started this huge fight amongst the 12, uh, and, and Jesus comes in the middle of that fight, and he says, you guys, it's what the Gentiles do. The Gentiles are all trying to get a leg up on each other. They're all trying to climb over each other's backs to the highest spots. It's not us. It's not how we roll. He says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, if you want to be great, if you want to sit on a throne, here's what you do. You become a servant. And whoever would be first among you, you're all arguing about pecking order, here's how, you, here's how you get the first in my kingdom. You become a slave, a servant. As husbands, what that means our mentality about leadership is not iron fist, it's not strong arm, it's, it's how can I serve you so that you flourish and become all that God has intended you to be as my wife? How can I honor you? 
Now you're not, that doesn't mean you got a blank check of yes, ladies. Don't go home and ask to redecorate that room today because Pastor Mark said, you're here to help me flourish. Help me flourish in this room. <laughs> no, it's not a blank check, but it is where possible, whenever and however, you seek the betterment of your bride. Yeah, saviors, they set themselves aside for those that they're leading. Uh, I said this wrong in the first service, but there's this uh, German general uh, who served under a tyrant, Hitler, heard of him? Uh, but his name was Erwin Rommel. He was a, um, a decent man, an honorable leader. And uh, he was responsible for some of the greatest victories in the German army in the World, uh, World War II. He, he, he led his forces in the African deserts. Uh, he was called the Desert Fox. I said Desert Rat at the first service. I don't know where I got that. But he was called the Desert Fox. And the reason that he was so successful, most historians attribute to the fact that he was an incredible leader. And the reason he was an incredible leader is because he didn't yell and scream. He, he, he wasn't vocal and demanding. He was a servant of his troops. The story's told that he would go into the mess tent. This is when uh, his, his forces were uh, beginning to be overrun by the allies. And uh, uh, you know, they were outgunned and outmanned, uh, but still uh, they fought the fight and they held out longer than they should have because he was able to get the hearts of his men by doing things like this. He'd go into the mess tent. He wouldn't eat in his general quarters. He wouldn't take his own meals by himself. He would go into the mess tent and he would wait for every soldier under his command to eat before he did. Even the guys who made the meal, he'd made sure they got the rations before he did. And he did this in a very public way so that everybody in his command would know that I, as your leader, am here to serve you. And it's amazing how those men responded to that kind of leadership. You know what, fellas? It would be amazing, probably for you, if you started serving your wife that way to watch how she might respond to that kind of leadership. Maybe you've been heavy-handed. It's just how I am. It's how my dad was which means it's okay that I do this. Thus saith me, gospel of me. Knock it off. You've been saved from you. You've been given a shot at being like Christ if you'll only submit to him. Yes, because saviors, see, they're, they're willing to die for those that they're, they're saving. We're gonna learn this next week in Ephesians 5. Verse 25, where it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Oh, fellas, be here next week. But here's the deal. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, yeah, Mark, I hear you. Hold my end of the couch. I submit as a wife to the servant leadership of my husband. I servant lead my wife as she submits to God's direction for us together as we combine to figure that out. I want that marriage. I don't have it. What if this isn't my marriage? Talk more about it next week. But let me leave you with this, with this from what Peter says as he writes on the subject. He says to wives, he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. See, there's, a, there's, there's power in us living out God's design. There's power in us, instead of trying to over-yell and, and, and out-lead each other, there's power in us just sticking in our lane and being who God has called us to be as a husband and wife.
Because when we do that, here's what God does. He shows the other person, ultimately, after a while, may take longer than you want, but he shows them ultimately, listen, this ain't right. This isn't how it's supposed to work. He's holding up his end of the couch. She's holding up her end of the couch. You've got to do your part too. So that, that's your first stop. When your marriage isn't what it's supposed to be, you, you work on you. You work on bringing the very best version of God's design for you in that relationship and trust God in the initial stages to make that work out. Always trust God. But that's your first step. And as we surrender to him, he has the power, the ability to bring about things that we would have never thought possible. So let me encourage you, if you're already married, live by God's design. If you're not yet married, choose God's design. If you're a wife, don't think that submission is a cuss word. It's not. It's a good thing. Done right, it's the best thing. Husbands, you make it entirely possible for your wives to rightly submit to you. Be a servant leader. And just watch, God, watch what God does in your marriage. Can you stand? We'll sing. Sing a song and surrender to him. you, God. I'm praying that everybody's praying this with me. I ask you on behalf of all of us to make that song a reality. That our souls would be surrendered to you. That all that we are would be yours. And as we seek to serve you and, and revere you and to honor you, uh, that you would lead us to the, the purposes that you have created for us in our marriages. And we'd function within your parameters. That we'd live your design as husbands, as servant leaders, as wives, as uh, submitted uh, and active and participative followers. Uh, all of us seeking you and your best in our homes. Uh, I pray that God, realizing that's your, your hope, your will, your command, and trusting that you're gonna uh, grant us that as we submit to you. So um, give us that in our homes, Lord. I pray there's really great conversations today around the things that we talked about in marriages. I, I, I pray that even those who aren't married yet would find someone to just kind of download uh, what these things mean and, and that we'd grow, we'd move forward in this life with you, um, living as you've called us to. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God, for Jesus, for salvation, for freedom from sin, for the chance to even become a little bit of what you've designed us to be. Grant us your grace as we follow you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, God bless you guys.